I love that famous quote. The world is so divided into tribes, except those Christians. <laughs> except we know that's not true, is it? That in our own experience, we find that Christians are just as prone to a divisive kind of tribalism, to a circling of the wagons around our own either political or personal ideologies. We are just as prone as our non-Christian neighbors to becoming puffed up. And as we've seen in the recent weeks in 1 Corinthians, this was the problem with the Corinthian church, that they were dividing up into factions. And each faction was dividing up around those things that they considered to be what the world valued most of power and of influence of attaching yourself to someone with nobility. Today, that might be somebody who is really proud because they get a shout-out by their favorite Instagram influencer. I'm of so-and-so. Well, the church was doing it here with, with famous teachers, with Paul and Apollos, of Peter and others. And it was leading to divisions in the church of a little tribe over here and a little tribe over there. And it was forming divisions that were fracturing this congregation. It's really what the first four chapters are all about, about the, about the theme of unity. And we see the diagnosis from the Apostle Paul in chapter 4, that is the chapter after the one that we're going to be looking at, there in verse 6. What's the problem? Here he's applying everything to himself and Apollos. Those names are going to come up again in our passage. He says it's for their benefit that they may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of them may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That's the problem with this church. They are puffed up. Like a balloon filled with helium being carried away by every wind of worldliness. And so I would ask you, what is it that's most, most scandalous? That fallen pastor in the papers? The one that gets all the press in our social media? Or is it puffed up proud churches who are so proud of themselves? The Apostle Paul here says that your pride, church, is scandalous. Perhaps this is what has kept some of you, if you're visiting with us today, this is what's kept you from church for years, that you've spent time in churches and you go, they don't seem any different to me than, than my non-Christian neighbors and my non-Christian friends. No, thank you. I don't want any of that. I hope that despite all of our weaknesses and imperfections, you might see something somewhat different in us today, but even more so that you would see beyond us to a Savior that we hope in. Our hope is ultimately in Christ and of His righteousness gained through His life and death as we've come to hope in Him even in spite of ourselves. Well, this idea of being puffed up, the problem that is infecting this church, this is an idea that runs all the way through Paul's letters. In fact, the word that's translated puffed up is found seven times in the New Testament and five of them are used in 1 Corinthians. 
Here in chapter 4, we see that they're puffed up and it's leading to divisions. Those divisions are looking a whole lot like their teachers we see later on down in verses 18 and 19. There the word is translated arrogant, puffed up, arrogant teachers, those who presume to go beyond what is written. And in the very next chapter, chapter 5, we see the same word translated arrogant again. Are you so arrogant that you would tolerate sexual immorality, that immorality that is tearing the church apart? A few chapters later in chapter 8, he uses the same word translated puffed up. And here it is concerning Christian liberty. Some are claiming to have superior knowledge to others. The kind of knowledge that puffs up where he says, no, love, love is what builds up. The kind of knowledge that you claim to have that causes you to posture yourself as superior over others. No, that just drags down and tears down the church. Love is what builds up the church. He uses it in chapter 13. Speaking of love, he says, love is not arrogant. It's not puffed up. And so Paul is essentially saying to this church, though love may not be puffed up, you are. And this is the problem. Their pride had been blowing up like a balloon. And they're getting puffed up, bigger and bigger, and more and more arrogant. And chapters 3 and 4 aim to deflate them. It is Paul taking a pin to the balloon, so to speak. Really, if we think about it, the entire letter of 1 Corinthians is all about balloons. Paul's popping them one at a time that they might be humbled by the gospel. And so keeping these things in mind then, I would encourage you, if you're able, to stand in honoring of God's, the reading of God's word as we read about these puffed up Corinthians and of Paul's solution, beginning in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. While there is still jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters, they're one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor, because we are God's fellow workers. And you are God's field. You're God's building. So according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and now someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold and silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, then he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, even though he himself will be saved, 
but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. Notice in that opening paragraph, verses 1 through 4, Paul identifies the problem, and he does so by putting three sets of opposites together. That you can either be spiritual or you can be fleshly. You can either be mature or you can act like babies. You can act in God's way or you can act in a merely human way. Well, in verse 1, we see here Paul giving reference to his first visit. We see that in the book of Acts in chapter 18. He comes into Corinth. He's preaching the gospel. People get converted. He plants a church. And he remains there for a year and a half, teaching them and instructing them. And he says that while he was there, he says, listen, you were just babies. You were infants in Christ, newborns, and that's how I taught you. And so he says at the beginning of verse 2, it was only natural that I fed you with what? You feed babies. I fed you with milk. I didn't feed you a solid food. Well, you wouldn't be able to eat it. You wouldn't be able to digest it. You were still, spiritually speaking, an infant. And so I fed you with milk. I put the cookies on the bottom shelf, so to speak. But here in verse 2, notice here's the shocker. That isn't the shocker. The shocker is not that when they were first converted, that they were like spiritual infants. The shocker is seen in the middle of verse 2. He says, even now... All these months later, these years later, even now, you are not yet ready. You're still like babies. It doesn't seem like you're growing. And the proof is found in verses 3 and 4, that there's jealousy and strife among you. That you're dividing over your preferred leaders, over Paul and Apollos, and which one is better, and which one you should be aligning yourself with. He says, no, this is an infantile pride. This is a, this is a elementary school playground pride. When six-year-olds puff out their chests and say, my dad is better than your dad. And the other one looks at me and says, no way. My dad can whoop your dad. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Johnny gets a bloody nose. Billy gets a black eye. They're both fighting together. They go to the principal's office. And the problem, note, is not with the dads. The dads are going to go home and discipline their sons as they rightly should. The problem is with their sons. Why? Because their sons are acting like babies. They're acting the way children act. Paul says, that's how you're acting. You're acting like babies. You should have grown up by now. But you have a kind of postponed infancy. And the proof is that you're still fighting over teachers. You're still dividing over these little tribes formed around personalities and platforms. And so beginning in verse 5, Paul is going to offer two corrections. His rebuke in verses 1 through 4 is essentially this. You need to grow up. But the corrections that he's going to give, the instructions that he gives in love as a father does to children, well, his first correction in verses 5 through 9 is, 
In God's field, only God gives growth. God was out of perspective with how they were relating to the church. And if you're following along on the back of your bulletin, you might be able to find this, my outline, right back there. So if you're writing really fast, I've already written it for you. It's on the back. In God's field, only God gives growth. And then he's going to give a second correction beginning in verse 10 all the way through verse 17, and that is in God's building, only God judges good work. Only God gives growth. Only God judges good work. God is the focal point. God is what he's trying to bring back into perspective because God is what has moved out of the frame of reference. But now before we move on to those corrections, I do want to take just a moment and I want to consider There are some who teach in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4, that there are two classes of Christians. There are carnal Christians, and there are committed Christians. This teaching was popularized in the middle 19th century. It ended up branching into various kinds of traditions, including Pentecostalism and early teaching out of Dallas Theological Seminary under the Schofield Bible and Lewis Berry Schaefer and others. And it's the doctrine of the carnal Christian that when one is saved, they are justified by faith in Christ alone. And yet it may be months or years before they ever experience any kind of meaningful growth or change in their lives. They still look just like the world, still act just like the world, until the Lord brings them to a crisis point at which time now they obtain to a higher life Not through the indwelling of the Spirit, that's what they received at conversion, but through the filling of the Spirit. Now you receive a filling of the Spirit that helps you to grow. And so there are carnal Christians who have been indwelt by the Spirit, but not filled by Him. And there are committed Christians who have now been filled by the Spirit and are being sanctified. There's a number of errors in this teaching. Number one, it divorces justification from sanctification. It divorces our right standing before God in Christ from our being set apart in Christ for holy use. That when you and I were saved by God's grace and we were brought into Christ by faith alone, we weren't merely justified, but we were sanctified. We see that as much at the end of chapter 1. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, that is justification, and sanctification. It's a package deal. It's the twin graces of conversion. Both of them come as a package deal. One doesn't come later. When you are saved, you receive the Holy Spirit, whereby you are united to Christ, justified once and for all, declared righteous by God, and at the same time set apart for holy use. And God, at that point, begins the slow work of progressive sanctification in your life. In our own testimonies, it might sound something like this. It's become such a popular teaching in so many churches over over the course of, of the past century. It might say, well, when I was eight years old or 10 years old or 12 years old, that's when I trusted in Christ as my Savior. But it wasn't until I lived a full life of sin for a decade, went to college, had this life-altering moment, this crisis moment that I accepted Jesus as Lord. Have you ever heard anything like that? And so the second error then is that it separates Christ and His humiliation I take Jesus and his death on a cross for the forgiveness of sins from Christ in his exaltation. 
that he is exalted over all things. He is Lord over all things, including over me from the moment of my conversion, giving me my spirit so that he might exercise his sovereign rule by his spirit through his word in my life. It's not merely I take Jesus as my Savior and then maybe months or years or decades later, now I take him as Lord. It's when you are converted by God's grace, he becomes both Savior and Lord. The third and perhaps the most divisive error involved in this teaching of the doctrine of the carnal Christian is that it creates two classes of Christians. It creates a junior varsity and a varsity in the church of carnal Christians in whom we identify only worldliness. And we try to compel them toward a crisis moment in which they might receive then the filling of the Spirit and become more holy. Friends, Christ's church is not divided. There are not two classes of Christians. There are those who are in Christ by faith alone, justified and sanctified in Christ. And there are those who are not in Christ and are left in their unbelief still dead. And so what I want to do is leave behind this idea, this error that is being taught in many corners of the church from verses 1 through 4, that there are two kinds of Christians, a carnal Christian and a committed Christian. No, there are Christians filled and indwelt with the Holy Spirit who can, because of indwelling sin and immaturity, still act carnally. But they're no less Christians than anybody else. They are in Christ. And so addressing them then as one people saved by Christ in whom they are both righteous and sanctified, Paul turns now in verse 5 to his corrections. He pops up their puffed up pride with a rhetorical question in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? He says, what are we? In the end, he says, we're not anything impressive. Look at verse 5. He says, we're just servants. We are, verse 6, just lowly laborers like farmers. And then he lets them in to the secret at the end of verse 7. He goes, here's the secret. It's not ultimately me that causes any growth. It's not ultimately... It's not ultimately Apollos that causes any growth. We're just laborers in a field. No, it is God who ultimately gives the growth. Now, what Paul's saying is not that farmers don't work hard. Planting and sowing, that's all hard work. It's instrumental to growth. But the sowing itself and the watering itself does not cause the growth. There are powers at work using the instruments of planting and sowing, bringing these things together to produce growth. And God says, spiritually speaking, God alone does that. And if that's true, then in verse 7, we don't deserve any of the glory because we, the Apostle Paul says, are nothing. God alone gets the glory because God alone gives the growth. God alone gives the glory because God alone gives the growth. And so here's the logic then. If Paul and Apollos are nothing, just servants, slaves, how silly then are these believers, how childish and immature it must be for arguing over which servant is better? Because in God's economy, according to verse 8, Paul and Apollos are just one. 
Their work was assigned by the same master. They get paid by the same master. They are just servants. But notice in verse 9, God is no harsh master. And this is not any kind of underpaid, underappreciated, seasonal farmhand work. Paul says, no, we are God's fellow workers. What a privilege to be able to cooperate God in the great work of redemption in the world. Not because you deserve any kind of glory whatsoever. God deserves the glory. Our glory is being permitted to participate with him in his great work. And then he says this, you are God's field. And so here he summarizes then the correction. Not only are we God's fellow workers, but you are God's field. God is moving to the center of their attention. He is attempting to get them focused back on who gets the glory and who belongs to whom. He wants to put God in the right perspective when it comes to growth in a church. He says, propping up human leaders. That leader's important, and I'm with them, so I'm important too. He says, all that does ultimately is demote God. That by attaching your glory to the glory of human teachers, you have robbed God of His glory. And so here's a question for us. It's a question that naturally flows from the passage itself. Who is it that gets the glory? Who gets credit when things go well in a church? Well, in light of that question, there's a handful of applications that we might consider first. Keep God in proper perspective. Keep God in proper perspective. Yes, be thankful for faithful church leaders, those who deliver the word of God to you, those who teach you. But don't glory in them. Give glory only to the one who gives growth. To quibble over leaders is to quibble over servants. God deserves the glory. Secondly, as you do that, keep church leaders in proper perspective. If you show me a church that regularly chews up pastors, I will show you a church that puts too much trust in leaders to give growth and gets rid of them when they don't. If you show me pastors that burn themselves out in ministry, I'll show you a pastor who may very well likely trust in themselves and not in God to give growth. And that pressure becomes a crippling and a crushing pressure. I'd rather go sell insurance than do this. To our leaders, our elders, brothers, you and I need to ask, do we think of ourselves as servants? Do we think this is my field? Or do we think this is God's field? Do we think this is my glory? Or is this ultimately for God's glory? Do we think of ourselves as great men? Man, God is lucky to have us. Or do we think with Paul in verse 9, wow, how kind is God to let us be, to let servants like us work with him in this great work. So let's keep church leaders in proper perspective. Thirdly, keep ministry ambitions in proper perspective. 
Whatever it is that any of us are called to do and be in the church, you and I do those things as God's servants. And we might all outwardly act and talk like servants. We walk the walk and talk the talk as well as anybody. But here's the truth. A person's spiritual maturity, think verses 1 through 4, a person's spiritual maturity isn't truly visible until they don't get their way. In those moments, then you see the person. And that's true for all of us in lots of different circumstances, but it's especially true as we do ministry in the local church. And so, beloved, I would ask you, do you trust God to give you your wages according to your labor, as we see here? Do you trust that the owner of the field sees you? Or do you need others to notice you as well? Beloved, people are much easier to fool than God, and so you might be tempted to think, well, let me get some glory now. Some of you might even think that, well, if there's no glory for me here, well, maybe I'll start looking for another church that will appreciate me more. Beloved, all of us need to be reminded, elders and members included, that in God's field, only God causes the growth. And since God causes the growth, only God gets the glory. And so we need to reflect on our own hearts and, and ask ourselves if we have in any way robbed God from His glory by wanting just a little bit of that glory for myself. As Nacho Libre would say, I just want a little bit of the glory. That can resound in our hearts, can't it? I want to be seen. I want to be noticed. I want the inside track. I want the pastor's ear. I want my opinions to be valued. And when they're not, or when somebody else's is, or when they get the, the opportunity that we wanted, how you respond in those moments will reveal the real you. It will reveal whose glory you're most concerned with. The one who gives growth or, as, or your own glory. And so Paul says, you are after your own glory at the expense of God's glory. It is God's field, therefore God gets the glory because God gives the growth. But then notice at the end of verse 9, he shifts his metaphor. He says, you're not only God's field, you are God's building. He switches the analogy. And now beginning in verse 10, he uses that building analogy. And he says, I've built a foundation and someone else is building on it. Here the emphasis is shifting. And the emphasis, that shift, is seen in verse 10 by the warning. Take care how you build. So Paul and the apostles, they are foundation layers. Christ crucified is the foundation. But now, how is it that we build on top of that foundation laid by the apostles of Christ crucified? What material are we going to use? Are we going to use good material, eternal material that lasts? Or are we going to use worldly methodologies, bad material that isn't going to last? And then in verse 12, we see the basis for the warning in verse 10. That whatever materials we ultimately decide to use, the quality of the material is going to be revealed. And of course, the implication is this. 
You and I don't get to decide what good work and good materials are. Paul's the best one. No, 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 no. Apollos is the better one. No, God decides what good work is. God is the one that decides what good materials are. And he is the one that is ultimately going to judge. When he's going to judge? Well, he says there in verse 13, it is going to be on the day. That same day that he refers to in chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Only the Lord knows motivations. So he's saying, don't be presumptuous. Your divisions are based on a kind of sinful presumption of knowing something that only God can know. And you need to turn from it. And one day, God's going to reveal it. In verses 14 to 15, he says, just like with farmers, God is the one who decides whose work gets rewarded. And notice a couple of things. First of all, notice in verses 14 and 15 that different builders get different wages. Some receive a reward and some suffer loss. But secondly, I want you to notice that one's salvation doesn't ultimately depend on this work. In verse 15, both are saved. These are true Christians. That among Christian teachers, some builders will be better than others and more faithful than others. The bad builder will still be saved or a true Christian, even though his ministry may be deemed mostly worthless by God in the final judgment. So the question is then, if it's not salvation that he loses, because you can't lose your salvation, what does he lose? And the answer is he loses that extra reward. What does that mean though? Does it mean that some are going to have bigger mansions than others? That some are going to have more jewels in their crown than others? These are all kind of Christian cliches that we throw around. Are there going to be classes in heaven? Is Mr. Golden Silver Builder living in a big house in a gated community while others like Mr. Hay and Straw Builder live on the other side of the heavenly tracks? Is that what the Apostle Paul's saying? To fixate on what the rewards are, I think, is to miss the point. And so whenever I think about this, I always want to go to Luke 19. I think this is helpful. We don't have time to go there this morning. But you may remember in Luke 19, Jesus gives a parable, a parable of Minas. You might call him Minas or Minas, but it's Minas. And in that parable, there are 10 servants. And each one of the 10 were given one mina, and they were to do something with it. And the first servant comes forward when the master returns, and he turned one mina into 10 minas, and the master says, then you get 10 cities for your 10 minas. A second comes forward and says, I have turned your one into five, and he says, so you get five cities for your five. A third comes forward and did no work for the master. He said, I just hid it away. Why? Because I was fearful that you were severe and mean. Now, what you're supposed to see in the parable at that point is how contrary his thoughts about the master were based on the way the master dealt with those who were faithful. That he was radically just and and kind and, and generous in his rewards. Servants don't deserve rewards. Servants are just to do the work that they've been given with no expectation of reward. So to receive a reward for the work given is an exceeding act of grace. But he says, I was afraid that you were severe and mean. 
The emphasis in Luke 19 is not ultimately what kind of reward do we get. The emphasis in Luke 19, as with the rest of the Bible, is what kind of rewarder is God? Is he just or is he unjust? Will he treat us fairly in the end? Will he judge our works and our lives fairly? Well, faithful builders work as those who trust God to judge their work justly. That's the point. Well, if we're considering these things, just this handful of verses through verse 15, we might consider a number of applications. First of all, our leaders in this church and elders and aspiring elders, I would have you listen to me now. Our leaders need to heed God's warning. We need to take care how we build. That is a call to humble ministry, not fixated ultimately on numerical growth and and outward indicators of ministry success. You and I, we cannot build up the church on any foundation other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, other than the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a man, living a perfect life, and dying a substitutionary death in the place of all who would come to repent and believe in Him, who has now been raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of the Father, where He rules forever, having sent His Holy Spirit to His church to do His work until He returns again. That is our apostolic foundation. We cannot build any foundation other than the foundation of Christ crucified. We cannot build a foundation, though we may be tempted to, on musical styles. We can't build it on age-graded ministries. We can't build a foundation, though we may be tempted to, like many churches, on politics or social justice or even on the personalities of our leaders. Elders, listen to me. And I need to hear this well as well. There are lots of things other than Jesus Christ that can grow a church. But any kind of growth that comes from material other than the Word of God about Jesus will not last because it doesn't give glory to God. It gives glory to us. We need to be careful how we build. And we need to remember then that our ministries are going to be tested as through fire. Our teaching ministries and what we build with. You and I are going to stand before the Lord on that day and we are going to give an account for what we build with. And the only thing that is going to remain from our ministry is that which is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and is built up with eternal materials according to His Word. Everything else will be consumed by fire. And so, my fellow elders, listen, we don't need to be famous. Our church doesn't need to be known outside of Denton. Brothers, our greatest priority is to faithfully preach God's Word. God knows who we are. God knows where we are, even if the world doesn't. And so, we preach the Word, and we trust our Master to repay. That's got to be our foundation. But second, as a whole church, we need to be slow to judge other churches and leaders. 
Let's not be the kind of church that loves our opinions and other Christian churches and leaders. We need to love sound doctrine without being doctrinaire. We need to care about healthy churches, but not love church health more than we love the church itself. And so I had asked, in what ways might we be tempted to judge ourselves against others? Well, do they take church membership as seriously as we do? Is their church's confession as biblical as ours? Are they more of that kind of seeker-sensitive, mushy kind of church with the grandiose events and the, and the countless programs? Well, we were just about the means of grace. Now, don't hear me saying that ultimately church membership is unimportant or a church's confession from the scriptures shouldn't be biblical or, or that we shouldn't lean into the means of grace and our ultimate trust to, to see God build up his church. And don't also hear me relativizing ministry. That is to each his own. The Bible doesn't do that. And our text clearly says that not all materials are equal. Not all Christian leaders build with the best materials. They build with what the world wants, not what God wants. Also, don't hear me say that we're never to judge. When we get to chapter 6, we're going to learn, quote, that the saints will judge the world. It takes great humility for Christian leaders and congregations to judge between true and false gospels, as we're called to do. True and false teachers, as we're called to do. Sound versus unsound doctrine, as we're called to do. True and false churches, true and false Christians. But beloved, listen to me. We need to be very, very, very careful. I need to be very, very careful that we do not become puffed up in our judgments, especially between one true church and another. For those of you who have come from other churches with whom you might have disagreements or had experiences that were difficult, the Lord knows you, He sees you, He will comfort you, He will sanctify you. But the devil is no respecter of persons and he would love nothing more than for you and your in your disagreements or in your distress to become an accuser of the brethren. Guard against it. If anything, our passage teaches us two things. Number one, it's to concern ourselves with how we build. Verse 10, let each one take care how he builds. You need to be worried about how you're building is what Paul's saying. Well, what about the other guy? And what about this guy? And what about that church? And what about this church? You need to be primarily focused on how you, on how we are building and what we're building with. Let each one be concerned with that. Secondly, we need to be really skeptical about our ability to judge the work of others. Due to our own sin and weakness, there are all kinds of things that you and I cannot see and we cannot judge in other true Christians and in other true churches. But God sees and God knows. That's why Paul says in chapter 4, verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Why? Would you presume to know as much as God? Would you presume... To be knowledgeable, not just on the methods, but all of the motives of those leaders and teachers in true churches? No, he says, 
Don't do that before the Lord comes. He's the one that will bring things to light. He's the one that will disclose the purposes of the heart. And at that time, each one will receive his condemnation or commendation from God. Beloved, listen to me. There are churches that we might consider to be weak and flimsy because they're not outwardly impressive. But there will be a lot of those kinds of churches that endure God's fire. And there will be a whole lot of churches that we look at, like the Corinthians do, looking at outward things, and they are impressive, and they've got impressive teachers and impressive ministries and impressive platforms, and they may not all stand in the end. And so in this regard, Paul gives us a good litmus test for our judgments in verse 16. Do you not know then that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? He says, Christ is your foundation. He's the foundation for the church down the street. He says, you're a temple being built on the foundation of Christ. You're a temple in which God aims to dwell on earth through his Holy Spirit. And so is the church down the street. That there is a group of spiritual stones being built up into a spiritual house, just like you are. Oh, but God, are they being built up with the best materials? God knows. God will reveal those things. In the meantime, what are we to do? We are to concern ourselves with our own labors as we pray for the labors of others. God, make them faithful. God, give them wisdom to use the resources that you've given to build up your church. But even more than that, would you keep us focused not on others, but on ourselves, that we might, each one of us, be fixated on how we build. So if God says of the church down the street, that's my temple, I live in them, and you respond, well, yeah, but we have better music, or we have better teachers, or we have better whatever, then you need to be very very worried. Paul says you're still acting like a baby. That's how spiritual babies think. That's a human fleshly way to think. That's a puffed up way to think. A mature church is concerned primarily with its own work. And just like the faithful servants in Luke 19, mature leaders and mature churches do the best work that they can do in a way that most pleases God and leaves judgments ultimately up to Him. And so to help us resist this kind of puffed up sinful pride, God gives us another warning in verse 17. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God destroys temple destroyers. And that's true first and foremost with those who would presume to preach a false gospel and lead those astray. Those are wolves in sheep's clothing. But here, he's not talking to them. He's talking specifically to these immature brothers and sisters that are dividing the temple of God. God is jealous for his holy temple. And he will protect it on the last day with a holy ferocity. And this should give us great pause before we would presume to correct or criticize other churches and other Christian leaders and imply in any way that they are not true churches or true Christians. No doubt some teachers are false. 
Some doctrines are false. Some churches are false. Some Christians are false. And they deserve, according to Scripture, to be rebuked from Scripture. But verses 16 and 17 are not talking about false Christians and false churches. Verses 16 and 17 are talking about God's temple, His holy dwelling place on earth. True Christians and true churches that are built on the foundation of the true gospel. Even if the quality of the building materials aren't the same, God will judge. And so to put it simply, if not provocatively, puffing ourselves up and litigating the work of other true churches is satanic. Revelation 12 says that Satan is, quote, the accuser of the brethren. Would we act like him? No, we pray for other churches. Every time one of our elders comes up with a pastoral prayer, we want to pray for other churches. Many of the churches are very different from us. That's okay. We leave them to their work. We're going to focus on our work. We're going to pray for them that they would build with good materials, even as we aim to build with good materials. That doesn't mean that we don't try to think well according to God's word about our differences. But even in those things, even the ways that we differ, we never presume to say that is a true church or a false church or a false church when it's a true church. That is to be an accuser of the brethren and a, and a temple destroyer. And God will set himself against you. And so you realize God is really kind to give us this warning to help us guard against becoming puffed up, judgy Christians. He says, I have a zero tolerance policy toward temple destroyers. Why? Because in the second half of verse 17, my temple is holy. Where does God get off calling his temple holy? It's holy because that's where God dwells. Those are his people. And he dwells in them by his spirit. That they would reflect the character of Christ and his power and his time by his means. Would you presume to vandalize and profane the very place where God's holy presence dwells with his people? Oh, may it never be. And so, beloved, do we believe this? That local churches are the place that God wants specially for His presence on earth. Our church is a place that God wants specially for His presence on earth. Because, beloved, when we see the church as God's field and not our field, we see that we're all His servants and we're all one in that regard. God causes all the growth, not us. And He gets all the glory, and we glory in Him. And when we view the church as God's building, Paul's second corrective, we see that every builder is one. They're his servants. We care chiefly that God gets the credit. We care more that the church is built up, not who is doing the building. And we are content to let God judge our work as well as the work of others. In a moment, we're going to come forward to the Lord's table as equals. And we're going to enjoy what we've received from God in Christ. The forgiveness of sins and the fellowship together in His Son. And so, beloved, there is no room at the Lord's table for puffed up people. 
How can we receive what God has graciously given us in Christ and have heads that go like this? That's anti-gospel. Rather than any of us thinking my whatever is better than yours or our whatever is better than theirs, let us consider how our God, our Savior, our Lord and theirs, 1 Corinthians 1, is better than any of us. He is our Lord. He gets all the glory, not us. Let's pray. Father, I confess I needed these reminders. My heart, like all of our hearts, can be prone to pride, to loving my own glory, to being seen and applauded. I confess that even now I wrestle inwardly between wanting to preach a really good sermon that gets high fives and attaboys and not being content to simply be your servant. Oh, how sin still just wages war against your spirit in my flesh. And so it is with all of us. And yet we thank you that you have given us your word to help put sin to death, to humble us. And even now, as I pray, as we consider the churches in our city and churches around the world, I pray as we consider churches that many of us have come from over the years, churches with whom we might have secondary or tertiary disagreements, I pray that those disagreements in hindsight would be disagreements whereby we are loving and charitable and kind And we'd be able to look at them first and foremost and say, that's God's temple. That's where your holy presence dwells with your imperfect yet sinful people because you love them. God, put away any pride and any kind of tribalism and sectarianism. Put away any kind of territorialism. I pray that you might even be kind to use this passage to pop our puffed up heads, as it were, with the pen of your gospel and humble us that we would just be grateful for what we've received in Christ, knowing that we don't deserve it and that we would be eager to serve others from it, giving ourselves to the work that you've given us to do in this field, in this building. Give us the strength to do it, I pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.